a brain, a heart, and a heart with a brain. Money and meaning in It's a Wonderful Life. Not crying, Mr. Potter. Well, you're begging. That's a whole lot of words. Well, all I'm asking for is 30 days more. Ah. Just a minute, son. Just 30 short days. I'll dig up that 5,000 somehow. Shut me up. Shut me up. Ah. Have you minute. put any real pressure on these people of yours to pay those mortgages? Time's up bad, Mr. Potter. A lot of these people are out of work. Well, foreclosed. I can't do that. These families have children. Ah. They're not my children. But they're somebody's children, Mr. Potter. Are you running a business or a charity ward? Well, all right. Not with my money. Mr. Potter, what makes you such a hard-skulled character? You have no family, no children. You can't begin to spend all the money you've got. Oh, I suppose I should give it to miserable failures like you and that idiot brother of yours to spend for me. This opening dialogue between Henry F. Potter and Peter Bailey encapsulates the two extremes honed within these characters that society still struggles with today. Potter represents extreme heartless business without any charity, a caricature of capitalism that Hollywood and the political left like to point to as the icon for all that's wrong in the world. Peter Bailey exemplifies big-hearted altruism without any financial sense, one who leverages someone else's money for a good cause, of course. Redistributing the miser's money with a clear conscience to help those in need is a natural thing for a socialist-minded fellow like Peter. Podcasts and personalities on the political right can identify this socialistic thinking from a mile away. The extremes on both sides played out within these characters violate fundamental laws of life and reality. The one follows the principles of math and finances perfectly at the expense of more meaningful endeavors like family and charity. The other wholeheartedly follows the selfless care for others at all costs, maximizing meaning in life at the expense of business sense, ending time and again in jeopardy of falling into bankruptcy. $5,000 in today's money, as of 2022, is the equivalent of over $80,000. It's a glaring example of financial ignorance, to say the least. Yet Potter is a mile too far in the other direction. Peter is right in pointing out the folly of his flawed financial fixation. When Peter Bailey dies of a stroke, George Bailey, his son, forgoes a trip to Europe to manage business in the wake of his father's passing. Three months later, a board meeting is held at the building and loan to appoint a successor. The chairman dismisses George so he can finally go on his trip. Potter eagerly seizes the opportunity, making a motion to dissolve the institution. Many at the meeting are shocked and outraged. As George makes his way out of the room, Potter explains why he thinks the institution should be dissolved. Peter Bailey was a man of high ideals, so-called, but ideals without common sense can ruin this town. Peter's brother, Uncle Billy, interjects to accuse Potter of being the stressor who killed Peter. Potter responds to the attack calmly. Peter Bailey was not a businessman. That's what killed him. Potter proceeds to give an example of the town's taxi driver who was turned down for a mortgage by the bank but was approved by the building and loans. Just as he's about to exit, George turns around to correct the record. I made that loan myself, and I can vouch for his character. Friends of yours, Potter asks. You see, if you shoot pool with the people here, you can come and borrow money, Potter mocks. 
What is that, Gaddis? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible ideas. Now, I say... Just a minute, just, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Potter. Just a minute. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny ante building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Probably... Here, you're all businessmen here. Well, doesn't make them better citizens, doesn't make them better customers. You, you said that they, what'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait, wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them, until they're so old and broken down that they, do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. George understands that putting a little faith behind people can give them the confidence that they need to become better than they were. Potter doesn't put faith in people. Potter puts faith in numbers. The people have to prove themselves first before the, he sends one cent their way. Perhaps Potter learned that lesson from George's father, who failed to repay the money he had borrowed over and over again. He should have waited until George was out of the room before he started in on his motion to dissolve the institution, but in that moment, timing was a tricky task. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on. After George delivers the last of his appeal to not close down the building and loan, he finally leaves the room, slamming the door behind him. Sentimental hogwash. Potter scoffs, dismissively summarizing George's appeal. The meeting then descends into a chaos of argument. In the end, they vote to keep the business open on one condition, that George Bailey stays and runs it. The building and loans is the last thing Potter can't fully control in his town, and it bothers him. George becomes the one guy to stand in Potter's way, but it comes at a cost to him. George has to postpone his dreams again and again and ultimately sacrifice them completely in order to save the town from Potter's strict, heartless control. George's dreams are postponed upon his father's death. They're postponed again so his brother can go to college for four years, again just before he goes on his honeymoon when Potter concocts a mischievous plan to cause a run on the bank with a rumor he himself fabricates. Another example of Potter's poor, premature timing. George runs back to the old building and loans, saving its permanent close with the all but two dollars of the money from his honeymoon. George's dreams to build skyscrapers and travel the world slowly suffocate until the hope of them dies a quiet whisper of the past. 
Although he never realizes his worldwide ambition, he pours all his efforts and talents into building his late father's business. It thrives, becoming a much superior alternative to Potter's slums. The movie shows a scene where the pharmacist that George used to work for as a child was breaking ground on his new home. Several people are there to celebrate. The movie cuts over to Potter. Mr. Potter, it's no skin off my nose. I'm just your little rent collector. But you can't laugh off this Bailey Park anymore. Look at it. Fifteen years ago, a half a dozen houses stuck here and there. There's the old cemetery, squirrels, buttercups, daisies. I used to hunt rabbits there myself. Look at it today. Dozens of the prettiest little homes you ever saw. Ninety percent owned by suckers who used to pay rent to you. Your potter's field, my dear Mr. Employer, is becoming just that. And are the local yokels making with those David and Goliath wisecracks? No, they are, are they? Even though they know the Baileys never made a dime out of it. You know very well why. The Baileys were all chumps. Every one of these homes is worth twice what it cost the building and loan to build. If I were you, Mr. Potter... Oh, you are not me. As I say, it's no skin off my nose. But one of these days, this bright young man's going to be asking George Bailey for a job. Bailey family's been a boil on my neck long enough. George was winning because he maximized demand by reducing profit margin without violating financial principles. He took a minimal salary and poured all the money back into helping people get into new homes. This is what business with a heart looks like. There was lots of room for profit margin, but that would limit the amount of people who could afford to live in the homes. I personally wouldn't go all the way to no profit like George did. I would find somewhere in the middle and maximize my own salary. After the Potter scene, the movie cuts back to the post-celebration of the pharmacist's new home. George's old friend happens to be driving through town from New York to look at a new factory his company built. He told George how he was going to drive down to Florida next. Practically living George's dream in his own way, his childhood friend tells his wife that he offered to let George in on the ground floor of plastics, and he turned him down flat. George responds jokingly, oh, don't rub it in. They all laugh, and George's old friend drives off to Florida. George and Mary walk slowly to their car where George kicks his door in. Despite his success in town over Potter, it still bothers him deep down that he gave up his dreams. His now wealthy friend coming into town reminded him of all the money and freedom that he could have had. Yet George can't even leave town for a brief Florida vacation. Potter invites George to his office and gives him a cigar. Thank you, sir. Quite a cigar, Mr. Potter. You like it? I'll send you a box. George is skeptical and gets right to the point. I suppose I'll find out sooner or later, but just what exactly do you want to see me about? Oh, George, now that's just what I like so much about you. <clears throat> George, I am an old man, and most people hate me, but I don't like them either, so that makes it all even. You know just as well as I do that I run practically everything in this town, but the Bailey building alone. You know also that for a number of years I've been trying to get control of it, or kill it, but I haven't been able to do it. You have been stopping me. In fact, you have beaten me, George. 
And as anyone in this county can tell you, that takes some doing. Now, take during the Depression, for instance. You and I were the only ones that kept our heads. You saved the building and loan. I saved all the rest. Yes, well, most people say you stole all the rest. The envious ones say that, George. The suckers. Now, I have stated my side very frankly. Now, let's look at your side. <laughs> Young man, 27, 28, married, making, say, 40 a week. 45. 45. 45. Out of which, after supporting your mother and paying your bills, you're able to keep, say, 10 if you skimp. A child or two comes along and you won't even be able to save the 10. Now, if this young man of 28 was a common, ordinary yokel, I say he was doing fine. But George Bailey is not a common, ordinary yokel. He is an intelligent, smart, ambitious young man who hates his job, who hates the building and loan almost as much as I do. A young man who's been dying to get out on his own ever since he was born. A young man, the smartest one in the crowd, mind you. A young man who has to sit by and watch his friends go places because he's trapped. Yes, sir, trapped into frittering his life away, playing nursemaid to a lot of garlic eaters. Do I paint a correct picture? Or do I exaggerate? Potter has George pegged. He knows exactly what's going on and decides to play into George's ambitious side. Avoiding answering, George responds, well, What's your point, Mr. Potter? My point? My point is I want to hire you. Hire me? Yeah, I want you to manage my affairs, run my properties. George, I'll start you out at $20,000 a year. Potter offers a salary nearly ten times more than what George was making. In today's money, it would be the equivalent of over $300,000 a year, with a three-year contract. $20,000 a year? You wouldn't mind living in the nicest house in town, buying your wife a lot of fine clothes, a couple of business trips to New York a year, maybe once in a while Europe. You wouldn't mind that, would you, George? Would I? Well, how about the building and loan? Oh, confounded man, are you afraid of success? I'm offering you a three-year's contract at $20,000 a year starting today. Is it a deal or isn't it? Well, Mr. Potter, I, I, I know I ought to jump at the chance, but I, I just... Uh, I, I wonder if it would be possible for you to give me 24 hours to think it over. Sure, sure, sure. You go on home and talk about it to your wife. I'd like to do that. Yeah, then in the meantime, I'll draw up the papers. All right, sir. Okay, George. Okay, Mr. Potter. They shake hands before George goes to leave. George feels the sweaty palm of Potter's hand and realizes it's another one of Potter's schemes. Oh, oh. oh no, now wait a minute here. Wait a minute. I don't need 24 hours. I, I don't have to talk to anybody. I know right now, and the answer's no, no. Doggone it. You sit around here and you spin your little webs and you think the whole world revolves around you and your money. Well, it doesn't, Mr. Potter. In the, in the whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you were nothing but a scurvy little spider. You... And that goes for you, too. 
out for you, too. George realizes that he almost fell for Potter's plot to shut down the building and loan and becomes utterly disgusted with himself. Potter's sweaty palm revealed his cards and woke George up. Once again, for the greater cause, George passes up a chance to sell out. Perhaps George agrees with his uncle's indictment that Potter drove his father to his grave. Perhaps he remembers the many times Potter scolded his father for not paying on time. Perhaps he never got over what Potter said about his father at the meeting before he was to leave town after his father's passing. Maybe it was all the above and everything about Potter disgusted George. Whatever the motivation, George shows a constant disdain for the man throughout the movie. Potter, on the other hand, never disrespects George up to this point. He maintains a neutral disposition until this meeting where he delivers all the charm he can muster. George seizes the opportunity to make clear to Potter that George doesn't need him in any way. George never does borrow one penny from Potter. Burning the last and only bridge between the two, he ensures a point of no return. Yet the day will come when he does return, a day when it becomes clear that there is only one man who can save him from utter ruin, that is, if only one man was asked. Uncle Billy arrives at the bank to deposit some money, gleaming with joy upon the news of Harry Bailey, George's brother, winning the Congressional Medal of Honor. When Potter enters the bank, too, Uncle Billy walks over, snatching the newspaper from his hand, saying, Good morning, Mr. Potter. What's the news? Reading the headline, Billy touts, Well, well, that couldn't be one of the Bailey boys, could it? You just can't keep those Bailey boys down, can you, Mr. Potter? How does slacker George feel about that? Potter responds disgruntled. Very jealous, very jealous. You know he only lost three buttons off his vest. You know slacker George would have gotten two of these medals if he had gone. After all, some people like George had to stay home. Not every heel was in Germany and Japan. Potter grabs the newspaper back from Billy's hands as he's rolled away in his wheelchair. When Billy goes to deposit the $8,000, he finds that he does not have the money. Without knowing it, he folded the envelope into Potter's newspaper. Potter finds the money and tells his aide to quickly roll him back to his door. Billy is seen going through the trash, frantically looking for the money. Potter rubs his chin as he's rolled back behind his desk. The chance to do George in once and for all literally fell into his lap, and he seizes the opportunity. A missing $8,000 in today's money would be a whopping $130,000. That was the entire mortgage on my three-bedroom, two-bath, 1,240-square-foot home when I sold it last year. Even though George did right in the financial realm, and extraordinarily well in market share, and even more valiantly with the people he helped, he left absolutely no room for this kind of error. To make matters worse, the bank examiner was waiting to inspect the books. Christmas Eve would not be a celebration this year. George tries to help Billy remember every step he took that day, traipsing through the snow downtown. In a last desperate attempt to jog some memory, George asks Billy a few more questions at the office. An exhausted Uncle Billy responds, Maybe, maybe, maybe. Maybe, uh, maybe. I don't want any maybe. We've got to find that money. I'm no good to you. Uncle Billy, look, do you realize what's going to happen if we don't find it? 
Listen to me. Do you have any secret hiding place here in the house? Some place you would have... Some place you hide the money. I've come over the whole house, even in rooms that have been locked since I lost Laura. Listen. Listen to me. Thank Thank I can't think anymore, George. I can't think anymore. It hurts. Where's that money, you silly, stupid old fool? Where's that money? Do you realize what this means? The words of Potter from the beginning of the story sail out of George's mouth. Uncle Billy was indeed a simple man with limited competence. George kept him anyway, entrusting him to deposit enough money to pay cash for an entire house. But his patience was expended. It means bankruptcy and scandal and prison. That's what it means. George shouts as he grabs Uncle Billy by the collar, lifting him out of his chair and throwing him back down. One of us is going to jail. Well, it's not going to be me. George angrily threatens as he storms off. Billy collapses onto his desk, weeping into his arms. It wasn't enough that while the business was successfully poured all the money back into helping people while maintaining a meager income when he could have easily enriched himself. On the grave of his cold, dead dreams, his life was rapidly turning into a nightmare. George sees his end very clearly, and the way out is closing fast. There's only one man who can save him now, and that's the one man he hates with all his being. But George swallows his pride and crawls into Potter's office. I'm in trouble, Mr. Potter. I need help. Through some sort of an accident, my company shortened their accounts. The bank examiner got there today. I've got to raise $8,000 immediately. Oh, that's what the reporters wanted to talk to you about. The reporters? Yes, they called me up from your building and loan. Oh, there's a man over there from the DA's office, too, who's looking for you. Please help me, Mr. Potter. Help me, won't you, please? Can't you see what it means to my family? I'll pay any sort of a bonus on the loan, any interest. If you still want the building and loan, I'm... George, could it possibly be there's a slight discrepancy in the books? No, sir, there's nothing wrong with the books. I've just misplaced $8,000. I can't find it anywhere. You misplaced $8,000? Yes, sir. Potter responds amusingly, looking at his aide in shock. Potter and his wheelchair aide are the only two who know what actually happened. Have you notified the police? No, sir, I, I didn't want the publicity. Harry's homecoming tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, you're going to believe that one. What have you been doing, George? Um, playing the market with the company's money? No, sir, no, sir, I haven't. Oh, is it a woman, then? Uh, you know, it's all over town that you've been giving money to Violet Bick. Violet was a woman that George was embarrassed by after a failed attempt to plan a romantic night with her. Despite the humiliation years ago, he generously gave her a loan to go pursue her own dreams in the big city. It was supposed to be a confidential act of kindness, but apparently Violet ran her mouth, turning it into a town-wide scandal. What? George whispers in shock. What? <laughs> Not that it makes any difference to me, but... Why'd you come to me? Why don't you go to Sam Wainwright and ask him for the money? Sam was the one who came through town to check in on the new factory. Not only was he out of town when George needed him the most, but he was in Europe, unreachable in such a short time. I can't get a hold of him. He's in Europe. What about all your other friends? Well, they don't have that kind of money, Mr. Potter. You know that. You're the only one in town that can help me. <laughs> I've suddenly become quite important. <laughs> Chuckling again, Potter finds himself in just the position he's always wanted to be in. 
Gloating, he responds. What kind of security would I have, George? You got any stocks? Bonds? Real estate? Collateral of any kind? George already offered the building and loan on a silver platter, but Potter isn't going to settle for that now. He's got George over a barrel, and he's going to dunk him hard. I have some life insurance, George says, as he pulls out an envelope from his coat. $15,000 policy. Yes, uh, how much is your equity in it? $500. $500. And you asked me to lend you 8000 Look at you. You used to be so cocky. You were going to go out and conquer the world. You once called me a warped, frustrated old man. What are you but a warped, frustrated young man? Miserable little clerk crawling in here on your hands and knees and begging for help. No securities, no stocks, no bonds, nothing but a miserable little $500 equity and a life insurance policy. <laughs> You're worth more dead than alive. George Bailey's eyes look up as they widen at that realization. But I tell you what I'm going to do for you, George, since the uh, state examiner is still here. As a stockholder of the building and loan, I'm going to swear out a warrant for your arrest. Misappropriation of funds, manipulation, malfeasance. Staring off toward the back of the room, you can see the wheels turning in George's head. George sees only one way out now. All right, George, go ahead. Go ahead. You can't hide in a little town like this. <laughs> he spirals into despondency, visiting the bar and drinking himself into oblivion. He then drives drunk and runs his car into a tree. Staggering down the street, he's nearly hit by a truck. He stumbles onto a bridge and prepares himself to end it all. Meanwhile, the town is abuzz raising money for George upon hearing the rumor of what happened. News travels fast in this small but growing town. George does, in fact, have equity that no accountant can record, no books can reflect, and no vault can hold. It opens a door that can't be closed, a door of gratitude, a door of reciprocity. His selfless sacrifice has been accumulating compounding interest, dividends, and equity in ways neither George nor Potter realize. He is sustained by the fruits of his labor from the sprouts he had nurtured, from the seeds he had sown. The echoes of his generosity over a lifetime reverberate back to him in a way neither his selflessness nor Potter's selfishness could anticipate. Patreon after grateful Patreon were dumping piles of money they had saved over the years on a table in George's house. Quiet, everybody. Quiet, quiet. Now get this. It's from London. Mr. Gower cabled you need cash. Stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $25,000. Stop. Oh. Hee-haw and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright. George Bailey's nightmare of bankruptcy and incarceration is fully dissolved into a vat of wealth he unwittingly accumulated. A fortune of wealth built by the brilliant balance of a heart with a brain. To my big brother George, the richest man in town. <laughs>